Hi everyone, it's Luke here. I just finished editing the podcast and I wanted to make you aware that we had a couple of audio issues towards the end of the show. Um, What happened was basically it sounds like Zach and I are talking over each other when in actual fact we weren't. It's just the way that the recordings come out. I think we had some kind of connectivity issues. Um, Apart from that, I think it's a really good show. We talk about Brexit, we talk about the coronavirus in the UK and we also discuss kind of the state of the US presidential election. So if that sounds interesting, please do listen on to this new episode of the Midfield Politics Podcast. Um, before I hand you over to to the show, um, please do follow us on Twitter at Midfield Politic. As always, stay safe, keep voting and enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Midfield Politics Podcast. My name is Luke James and I'm joined across the dispatch box by none other than Zach. So we're going to be discussing a mixture of UK and US politics, which is happy because if you do like UK and US politics, you should follow us on Twitter at Midfield Politic. However, before we get into the more substantive stuff for today's episode, Zach, what has caught your attention over the past seven days? Uh, first of all, hello to everyone. Episode 18, here we are. Um, the thing that's caught my attention this week has been that Ipsos Mori poll that before it came out, it, we all thought it'd be a voting intention poll for Westminster. So when the the guy, Ben Page, was saying, oh, it's one of those old oh my giddy aunt polls, we're thinking it's either going to be a massive Labour lead or a massive Tory lead. And it kind of knocked everyone for six when it was actually a Scottish independence poll. And at first glance, you're thinking, well, it's not really that important. But then you look into the poll and it's the highest ever support for independence that's been recorded in a poll. And you look at Ipsos Mori, they are like the creme de la creme of pollsters. And alongside that, you had also Scottish Westminster voting intention that has the SNP way out on a on course for a landslide as well in next year's elections. Yeah, I mean, that the, the polling, I feel like everyone was expecting something to do with kind of directly related to Westminster and when it came out as being kind of a Scottish specific poll a that was eye-catching because a lot of the time this kind of stuff doesn't cut through especially south of the border and the other thing obviously why it's caught our attention this week is because it's just so a historic and b kind of such a big event to kind of happen amid a global pandemic as well it's something to bear in mind so kind of if we crunch into the numbers on this support for independence in Scotland, according to the new poll by Ipsos Mori, has risen to an unprecedented 58%. Um, this found just 42% backing kind of the unionist side in the argument, with 58% in favour of breaking away from the United Kingdoms. Uh, if we were to include undecideds in this, 55% of people would vote yes if there was an independence referendum tomorrow, 39% would vote no, and 6% said that they did not know. It's the biggest lead in a poll ever recorded for the pro-independent side. And of course, that powers into comparison what actually happened in the last referendum up in Scotland. So that's important to kind of take into account. The same poll by Ipsos Mori also spoke about the Holyrood voting intention. And for me, I think this is probably, if not more interesting, definitely as interesting. So if you don't know, in, in Scotland, they have kind of a split electoral system so you have first past the post in operation and a party list system so you have members of the scottish assembly scottish parliament that represent constituencies much like they would represent your kids your constituency in westminster and they also have party list voting so kind of bigger regions and they elect kind of multiple people 
the Holyrood voting intention is really interesting. So currently 58% of people on kind of the constituency level vote would vote for the SNP. 19% Conservative, 13% Labour, 8% for the Liberal Democrats and 1% for the Green Party. Under kind of the constituency vote, it tends to favour the two or three parties that tend to kind of dominate the elections, hence why the Green Party is so, so low on 1%. Then if you compare this with the list vote, and again, list voting is it kind of tends to be where you'd vote for another party that kind of perhaps more accurately reflects your kind of political opinions. Basically, it, it means that you don't have to tactically vote on both kind of systems. Under the list vote, the SNP still would receive 47% of those votes. The Conservatives, 19%, Labour, 13%, the Green Party, 9%, and the Liberal Democrats, 8%. Which, if this were to happen in an actual Holyrood election, this would put the uh, SNP on 73 seats, the Conservatives on 22, Labour on 15, the Green Party on 10, and the Liberal Democrats on nine so that's losses i believe for the conservatives and labor with the bulk of those going towards the smp with the greens and liberal democrats picking up a few too i'm conscious of the fact that i've ruled off a lot of information there um so i'll hand it back over to you zach what is going on in scotland why is this kind of it feels like it's appeared out of thin air but i feel like that's a probably not true and b kind of slightly lazy analysis at this point i feel Public attitudes towards Nicola Sturgeon, for example, and we've seen this actually in a lot of polling when you actually ask the great British public at large about uh, the ratings of each of each leader. Obviously, at the moment, Boris Johnson is swimming in negative ratings. Keir Starmer is kind of sloping off at kind of at least positive ratings. And you have Nicola Sturgeon always way out in front whenever we've had elections, past three elections, I believe now Sturgeon's been SNP leader. She's attracted very good ratings across the country, whether, you know, whatever side of the divide you're on. And for better or for worse, for Scotland's handling of the coronavirus, you see Nicola Sturgeon kind of seizing the initiative, uh, being more active to events rather than Boris Johnson, who at the moment is dithering and delaying any sort of restrictions, whether that's nationally or locally. And you contrast that also with Mark Drakeford in Wales, and I'm assuming Labour, uh, Labour, who's Labour there, and Labour's polling in Wales is kind of correlating with what's happening in Scotland, the SNP, that if you have a strong leader, yes, the SNP have not got this perfectly right. I mean, I don't think anyone has across the world, to be quite honest with you. But people like a strong leader, like a leader on convictions, uh, an SNP government who I think they've been in power in Scotland for a long, long time in Hollywood, and there's such a dissatisfaction with Westminster that, and I think we'll talk about this later on in the podcast about the opposition as well, that Westminster's become so indivisible between Labour, Tory, and even Liberal Democrat for that sake, that really the SNP are your truly alternative party of power, whether that's in local or national, uh, in local or national footings. And as a result, I think the SNP are on course for a landslide, which kind of does make for a very interesting 2021. You have Boris Johnson flat out refusing the calls for independence, even a referendum on it, whereas kind of taking the more pragmatic view that an SNP landslide would probably give them the legitimacy for a referendum. And it's 
kind of the SNP really don't have to do anything because Labour and Conservative are fighting it out between themselves and making the case for independence quite tempting. And as well, when you unpack that Mori poll, I found it quite interesting that Boris Johnson is polling higher in Scotland than Labour's Scottish leader, Richard Leonard, who many see to be kind of the ilk of Jeremy Corbyn's kind of wing, uh, who's very, very much disliked by a lot of people on social media from Labour, who's refusing to resign himself. And I think that's playing a point, uh, playing a part in Labour kind of sloping into the third party in Scotland, which 20 years ago would be absolutely unthinkable. I'm going to take the opportunity to throw some more kind of polling at you. So this is again from the Ipsos Mori poll. And the question was as, as follows. If the SNP wins a majority of seats in the 2021 Scottish Parliament elections, do you think the UK government should or should not allow them to hold another independence referendum within the next five years? So of the people who responded, only 2% said that they didn't have an answer to that question. 51% of, re of respondents said that kind of the UK government definitely should allow an independence referendum to happen. In addition to those people, you had 12% saying that they probably should be able to hold a referendum, and then 27% saying definitely should not, and a further 7% saying probably should not. So, I mean, if you look at the totals on this, that's 34% of respondents saying that there should not be an independence referendum versus 64% who say that there should be in the event that the SNP win a majority next year. And again, this is something that you were speaking about, Zach, the satisfaction with, with party leaders, both kind of nationally across the whole of the UK and within Scotland itself, is very, very interesting reading and not particularly good reading for Boris Johnson. And to be fair, that's probably being somewhat kind. So at the moment, Boris Johnson is, is minus 58 in terms of satisfaction rating. Nicola Sturgeon is plus 49. Sakia Starmer plus 16. Douglas Ross, who is kind of the Conservative uh, Party leader in Scotland, he's a member of Parliament in Westminster, is currently minus 17, although he has 40% undecided, so that's probably worth noting. As you said, Zach, Richard Leonard, minus 25%, the leader of the Scottish Labour Party. And then the Liberal Democrat, Willie, Willie Rennie, is currently minus one and again he has 41 percent undecided on him so yeah there's i mean the obvious thing to take from to, from that is number one kind of regardless of your side in terms of whether or not you want scottish independence or not of course this only applies to people in scotland there seems to be a growing consensus that if the smp win next year which it looks very very likely that they will the people in Scotland tend to believe that there should be a referendum held at some point over the next five years. The second major thing to point out is that Nicola Sturgeon currently has 72% satisfaction rating, 24% are dissatisfied, 4% don't know. That is staggeringly good for a kind of national leader who obviously is the first minister of, first minister of Scotland, who if we look over this with a critical eye, there are lots of things that Nicola Sturgeon has done pretty badly on. I mean, education in Scotland is often criticised. Healthcare in Scotland is often criticised. And again, we talk about the kind of Boris Johnson exam fiasco. 
that actually started in Scotland. Scotland did the same thing first and then backtracked earlier, but the same mistake was essentially made. So yeah, Nicola Sturgeon isn't someone who has been perfect on everything. But I think the reason that her satisfaction ratings are so high is number one, there's clearly a swelling of support in favour of Scottish independence. And number two, she has dealt with the coronavirus in a way that has treated it exceptionally seriously. And we compare that with the likes of Donald Trump, for example. This is kind of the obvious kind of example on this. Donald Trump has been seen to have not dealt with the coronavirus seriously. And that's fine if people don't die as a result of your handling. But if people die as the result of your handling, if the, if the economy gets hurt as a result of that, and you're still not taking it seriously, that's when it becomes very, very problematic from kind of a satisfaction rating. And again, Sturgeon on that basis, it seems, has done very, very well indeed. Zach, um, this is only kind of the opening segment of the show. We probably wasn't meant to spend that much time on it. I, I will ask you, though, um, the previous question from the poll. So if the SNP win a majority in 2021... Should the UK government allow them to hold a referendum over the course of the next five years? I believe they should. And this is something I'd say I'm a unionist myself. I would not want to see Scotland be, become independent. However, we know the SNP, we know they're raising debt. We know that their sole cause is to be uh, to to at least put in the mechanics for Scotland to become an independent country. I, I don't believe that people who vote SNP vote SNP because they don't have that at least in mind and I feel the only way the only reason the UK government are refusing and probably Labour are being a bit I'd say I'd say that Labour are being a bit complacent on this issue is that there is an arrogance I think among unionism at the moment that any anything other than being in the UK is an act of self-harm which is largely ironic considering what's happening at the moment with Brexit right and I feel what that argument will not be there as it as it was six years ago, which is mad, isn't it? Six years ago since the Scottish referendum, that kind of it really doesn't matter about the finances. That I think when you look at these polls, and I, I say this all the time too, so I think Scotland are gone. I think once you have that referendum, whenever that may be, I believe they'll vote to become independent because the union has failed. I think Scotland and. If you're a Scottish nationalist, I think, yeah, quite rightly so. If the SNP were to win a landslide in a system that really, A, doesn't even allow majorities, let alone landslides, to to enable that, then I'm afraid that the cause for it is going to become quite irresistible. Now, I don't think it will happen. Uh, I don't think the referendum will happen with Boris Johnson in power or even a Conservative government in power. But that case is going to become even louder and even stronger over the next couple of years. Yeah, I agree. I feel like kind of the difficulty that that, that kind of Boris Johnson's Westminster government have now is that they're looking Scottish independence and the SNP look very much like kind of an irresistible force. It's growing stronger and stronger throughout the years, and it's starting to look a little bit sketchy for unionism as a whole, not just in Scotland, but kind of what although on a kind of more minor scale, independence movements in Wales have started to kind of pick up a little bit of steam. And there's lots of discussions to be had about the future of, of, Nor of Northern Ireland too. And as you say, Zach, the additional member system, the electoral system used in Scottish elections, is 
literally designed to prevent political parties from having an overwhelming majority. It's it's meant to be proportional. And part of the idea of having a proportional representation system of voting is that nine times out of 10, it means that there's a pretty even mix between the parties. And if the SNP go and romp to, what, 72 seats in Holyrood, that is quite extraordinary. That's that's quite something. And again, as you said, you're probably not voting SNP if you're not in favour of independence or at least in favour of having an open discussion about that. Your mind isn't close to the idea of independence. Because let's be honest, you could vote for the Labour Party if you kind of had left-wing politics but didn't want independence, that that's the option available to you. But the Labour Party, again, is struggling in Scotland too. And the Conservatives aren't exactly taking the mantle in that respect. Whether Labour dropped to third or second is kind of irrelevant. Neither of the Unionist parties are doing particularly well. So yeah, the, the situation in Scotland is looking exceptionally bleak for people in Westminster, unless, of course, you're, you're a member of the SNP and that there are a growing number of them in Scotland. Um, in, in Westminster, rather. So, yeah, I feel like that probably sums up the first section of the show, and it kind of ties pretty nicely into the second. So we, we should probably mention as well, we're currently recording this at uh, 10 minutes to 6 on Friday the 16th of October. That's, that's how we choose to spend our Friday evenings. Um, and so, of course, <laughs> there's a very live situation going on with the coronavirus at the moment. It was announced earlier today that Lancashire had gone into or was about to go into tier three of the lockdown restrictions, which quite bizarrely means that in Lancashire, you can still go to the gym. But in Liverpool, you can't go to the gym. I'd like someone to explain why that's a thing. But there we go. Um, so, yeah, there's been lots of movement on the coronavirus situation in the UK. And that's what we wanted to talk about next. Um, in order to frame our discussion, what Zach and I wanted to do was to play a couple of clips from kind of what Boris Johnson has said today and what Andy Burnham, the mayor of Greater Manchester, said yesterday. So first of all, I'm going to hand you over to Andy Burnham. The government is not giving city, region, city regions like ours and the Liverpool city region the necessary financial backing for full lockdowns of that kind. That is why we have unanimously opposed the government's plans for Tier 3. They are flawed and unfair. They are asking us to gamble our residents' jobs, homes and businesses and a large chunk of our economy on a strategy that their own experts tell them might not work. We would never sign up for that. If agreement cannot be reached, I will need to intervene in order to protect Manchester's hospitals and save the lives of Manchester's residents. But our efforts will be so much more effective if we work together. Some have argued that we should introduce a national lockdown instead of targeted local action, and I disagree. Closing businesses in Cornwall where transmission is low, will not cut transmission in Manchester. So while I can't rule anything out, if at all possible, I want to avoid another national lockdown with the damaging health, economic and social effects it would have. 
So, Zach, we've heard from Andy Burnham, the Mayor of Greater Manchester, and Boris Johnson, of course, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. They're, they're offering very different messages at this point on the coronavirus and coronavirus restrictions, particularly kind of in the Greater Manchester area. What have you made of this kind of situation that has started to bubble away over the last two days? I feel like off the top of the bat, this has been a complete failure of the government. That the fact that I was reading news reports that it was about Lancashire agreeing a deal, like the it, it, it's ludicrous, isn't it? That you have such a trade-off between businesses, livelihoods, and some semblance of a lockdown, but we don't really know what that translates to in a local area. Like you said at the top of the section, that you can't go to the gym in Liverpool yet you can go to the gym in Lancashire, yet they're on the same kind of footing of a of their tier. And it's it every measure that comes out at the moment doesn't make sense. It, it, it's all either contradictory or quite convoluted. And when you have that, and you have a local mayor such as Andy Burn, I think he's played a really good role in all of this. And I feel like he will be an invaluable asset for Labour going forward because this is a typical mayor fighting for the people in his locality. And Boris Johnson seems to think this whole idea of threatening, you know, infections and death and pestilence on if you don't obey is kind of short-sighted. And again, it, it shows that the Conservatives are kind of slipping away up north in where in areas where they really should be appealing to. And Burnham makes this really good point about if you can't give businesses and hospitality sections relevant backing or funding and workers relevant security in their jobs, then lockdown is kind of pointless, isn't it? It, it would wreck the local economy to the point where this kind of thing will translate across the country. And for me, it's a never-ending story, isn't it? This is going to keep happening unless you go for a circuit break lockdown, which has its own faults as well. And it's kind of, again, I think we said this months ago, the economic reality of the initial lockdown is beginning to translate into localities where we warned this could happen. We, I think we said this months ago where there could be a point where we are just coming out of restrictions, yet there's going to be an uneven spread of cases across the country and Andy Burnham spoke about that yesterday he said that kind of we moved out of the national lockdown too soon for much of the north of England which lo and behold in his words is why the north of England is disproportionately impacted compared to the south um, the thing that I wanted to pick up on from the clips and I think this is very very important I don't think it's been spoken about enough is that Boris Johnson who for weeks and weeks and weeks has been ruling out any notion that we could possibly have another national lockdown, said the words, well, we can't rule anything out. And I think, although it slipped somewhat under the radar, it says a hell of a lot about the situation that Boris Johnson is now in and a hell of a lot about his self-confidence. Because, and I, I was having this conversation yesterday, Boris Johnson, like him or loathe him for his politics or his personality, throughout his career has always been defined by having kind of a charisma and a confidence about him. And that is ultimately, of course, why he decided to back the Brexit side of the referendum. It was a way of building his career and all this kind of stuff. But we've seen that completely evaporate over recent months, particularly since he himself was kind of 
testing positive for the, for the coronavirus and had his stay in hospital. I mean, this is a prime minister who doesn't look confident in the decisions that he's currently making. And kind of with that in mind, is it any surprise that mayors kind of in the north of England are are making deals with Westminster about whether or not to go into tier three? I mean, there's as has slightly become my catchphrase recently, there is a lot to unpack here. The first one I've gone through, the idea that Boris Johnson is now not completely closed to the idea of a national kind of lockdown of sorts. The second one, and again, I thought this was quite funny, the the BBC news notification when it kind of the news broke that um, Lancashire was going to go into tier three uh, said Lancashire strikes deal with Westminster or words to that effect as if they were negotiating with Brentford over signing Ben Rama on deadline day. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it says something about the changing nature of our politics, because if this had happened 20 years ago, there would be no negotiations with anyone in Lancaster, uh, Lancashire. It, it simply would have been Westminster says this, this is what's happening in your area. And again, we've seen devolution in Scotland, devolution in Wales, devolution in Northern Ireland has had a huge impact even in local areas across England too. I think that's important. And the other thing to bear in mind as well is that Andy Burnham isn't looking like he's going to back down. And again, Dominic Raab came out with some comments earlier today about how he kind of had to for, for the health and safety of his of his um, constituents in Manchester. And it feels like the Conservatives are really stumped about what to do here because they've set quite a dangerous precedent with this because they gave the veneer of a negotiation happening with Liverpool when kind of the mayor has said there wasn't really any kind of negotiation. And now they find themselves in a situation where it's like they're negotiating with states. It's kind of, we, we've spoken about the Americanization of British politics before, but it does feel a little bit like kind of the regional city mayors are gaining a hell of a lot more power. And we're seeing new players kind of emerge throughout this pandemic. And I think the way it's changed our politics is is really fascinating. In terms of the case numbers, they've actually been released kind of while we've been recording the podcast. So on Friday, of course, this podcast is going to be released Saturday morning. On Friday, there were 15,650 new cases in the United Kingdom. That comes with 136 new deaths. And again, if you look at some of the charts, the, the seven-day rolling average is now up to 16,228. And hospital admissions, especially in the Northwest, are rising kind of at an increasingly kind of quick rate and again if i if you look at the west midlands or kind of the, the midlands as a whole the situation is is getting a little bit worse here too from a personal perspective zach are you worried about how the government is handling this because i from speaking to people who aren't particularly interested or engaged with politics on kind of this kind of level which i appreciate is is a fairly niche level in itself People are starting to go, well, I don't really know what to do. Should I go home for my birthday? Should I stay here? Like, what What should I be doing? So I, I guess I'm looking for you to appraise what's going on at the moment. That's the thing, isn't it? What is going on? <laughs> you know, um, everyone you speak to, that's what we, we say all the time, that's out of the bubble, they just cut this very either exasperated look 
or this very confused look because there's someone in my flat for example who goes so what's actually happening I was like I mean I'll be quite honest I don't really know because this imposition of tears I actually kind of think that's actually quite a good idea but at the same time the way it's actually been implemented and the way it's been kind of distributed across the country has been quite half-hearted and when you have such a, a system that's designed to probably prevent the big extreme which is either a, a second national lockdown or a lockdown of some sorts that kind of is the circuit breaker you're put into this position where Boris Johnson a few days ago absolutely went way into Keir Starmer calling him a shameless opportunist and playing politics with, with the pandemic and that, that no, no such thing would ever be countenance that there won't be a circuit break lockdown and then just hours later he's talked about nothing's off the table and what it seems to me is that we're kind of beating around the bush that we are heading towards this circuit lockdown yet we're going for this rigmarole of being dragged kicking and screaming through really odd measures really confusing measures and then going to the extreme of saying okay well i've got no choice cases are still going up no one's following the rules it's a it's a circuit break and i feel like again if the government wants to get a grip on this they, they've got to up their communications game and i feel like we are heading towards the inevitable and as as much as i don't really like the idea of a circuit break lockdown i feel like that's the way we have to go because at the moment, all these concentrated lockdowns are either not working or not being managed fast enough to control the I need the to read a paragraph from the news report I've just, I've just got up. When is the October half-term 2020? Although the dates of October half-term in England and Wales vary from region to region, for most schools this year it falls either from Monday the 19th of October to Friday the 23rd of October, or from Monday the 26th of October to Friday the 30th of October. I feel, as we've seen in Northern Ireland, I feel like something is brewing when, uh, kind of, when it is potentially an opportune moment to shut down parts of the economy, especially if the kids aren't in school that week. I just feel like we're heading in this direction. And again, we had, and there, there was out outcry this week about kind of the the client journalism kind of thing that we've got going on in this country with the likes of uh, Laura Kinsberg, I believe Robert Peston was one of them too, all tweeting the same quote from an anonymous government source who will probably call Dominic Rummings. Um, Dominic. So, and again, we have we have these kind of situations pop up all the time where, where, where this anonymous source, whoever this person happens to be, uh, says disparaging things about leader of the opposition or whoever. And uh, while we can we can talk about that form of journalism at another time. I think the important thing to bear in mind is the government immediately clamped down and immediately said, no, that's a terrible idea. Captain hindsight, we're not going to follow this. We're not going to implement a national lockdown. It'll be horrible for the economy. It'll be horrible, horrible for people. It'll be horrible for their jobs and it will just be a disaster, which is a fair position to hold if that's what you think. But we've gone from that kind of visceral objection. I think that was on Tuesday, the Keir Starmer press conference at the time of speaking on Friday the Prime Minister's talking about well mm. we can't rule anything can't rule everything out and it's well that's that's a big shift and again people have this conversation a lot on Twitter about the, the clip that actually the thing that's made me think about this so Emily Hewitson who's the um, a uh, conservative <laughs> kind of activist I'm not kind of sure 
beyond that what she does, but kind of a conservative activist. <laughs> Lots of her tweets from the election kind of campaigning for Boris Johnson have been cropped up and then kind of in the how it's going and then a tweet of her saying that kind of the government is ruining young people's lives. Um, and of course, people can change their mind. I'm not saying that Doris Johnson should stick to one path because that's what he thought two weeks ago. So that's what he should think now. What I'm saying is it would be a little bit kind of reassuring as a as a member of the public to see some kind of steadiness at government. And again, I'm kind of doing a lot of reading on US foreign policy at the moment. And one of the main themes in kind of the literature that you read is basically, well, US foreign policy is a lot like kind of trying to turn an oil rig. Like it's it's very slow change. You can either move it like two degrees north or two degrees south. But at the end of the day, whatever president is in, who is in office, you can't really change US foreign policy that much. And I feel like it would have been nice somewhat kind of speaking back to kind of more normal times in British politics if we had a situation where we felt like the government had a handle on this and from the conversations that I have with people people don't seem particularly reassured I I hasten to talk much more about the coronavirus because it is moving so so quickly and I don't really want to get into things that could go out of date before the podcast goes out um my final question to you on this though zach is obviously we're both university students i'm at warwick zach is at kent how do you feel kind of your university is dealing with this are you happy kind of with the teaching and whether it's in person or online like what's going on there um i'd be happy if the online teaching was worthwhile there's a few of our modules that bring up recorded lectures from a couple of years ago and you're thinking well you don't pay 9,250 well you know once you're in a job and that to pay for lectures from two years ago I feel like I feel like no university's handled it perfectly there's always going to be a sort of whinge about some parts I mean on the whole I think Kent has it's a much better response than it was initially back in February and March and April I think they've kind of learned the lessons from how badly they dealt with it back then. But at the same time, I feel like, like with most universities, there's so much still up in the air, which, I mean, you can afford them a bit of um, a bit of leeway because, for example, exams in, in the summer, you don't know how what the climate's going to be to permit that or not. But at the same time, I feel like, in general, you're going to have universities across the country that, still don't know the public messaging from public health and the government and whether or not students stay or not or how they go about their daily lives on campus or if they're coming onto campus and I feel like hopefully in the next couple of weeks it becomes a bit clearer but you just simply don't know like you say it's a it's a live situation we could effectively go into a circuit lockdown very quickly and the whole situation changes just like that overnight it's so fluid, but at the same time, I feel like universities need to start getting a grip, especially on testing. Speaking from my own experience, so I've, I've been back at university now for two weeks. This is kind of the first week where I've had seminars as opposed to just lectures. And I only, so I, I take four modules. One of them's a dissertation, so that's that's no contact hours, um, which is obviously fine. The, the other three are an hour lecture and then an hour seminar. I only have one hour a week where I'm physically required to be at the university. For context, I probably live about 
35 minutes away on the bus, which is fine. That, that's, that's a fine commute. I'm not complaining. But when you're going in for an hour, if that in terms of how long the seminar actually lasts, <laughs> and then obviously you can't really sit in the buildings because they don't really want you to be there. You have to have like key access to go in all the buildings. The library isn't open. Uh, you have to wear a face mask the whole time. And again, I'm not criticizing these measures because I think they're required. And again, we've, we've veered slightly away from the topic at hand, but I feel like universities really wanted or needed guidance from government because I feel like we're stuck in this horrible halfway house between in-person teaching, which I understand why people prefer, but if you're of the opinion that kind of what you're receiving now is the same as what you was receiving in January, you are completely out of your mind. It's a different kettle of fish. And then we're stuck in between kind of in-person teaching and online teaching. I would just prefer at this point just to commit online because in a couple of weeks, if we're being, I don't even think it's particularly pessimistic to say this, but if we're being perhaps even realistic, I'm not sure that my university will be able to have in-person teaching because of the number of cases on campus and in the local community. Um, so that's kind of a cheery thought to end the segment on the UK's handling of the coronavirus. Um, although we're not hopping across the Atlantic just yet. So Zach wanted to talk about Brexit. So here is a clip from Boris Johnson talking about the breakdown between the UK and the EU around the negotiating table. Well, I, as far as I can see, they've abandoned the idea of a, of a free trade deal. There doesn't seem to be uh, any progress coming from, from Brussels. So what we're saying to them is only, you know, come here, come to us if, if there's some fundamental change of approach. Otherwise, we're more than happy to talk about, you know, the practicalities that I described, the social security issues, road haulage and, uh, and so on. But unless there's a fundamental change of approach, we, we're going to go for the Australia solution. And we should do it with great confidence, as I said, high hearts confidence, because we can do it. There was always going to be change on January the 1st, uh, but it's becoming clear that the, the EU don't want to do the type of Canada deal that, uh, you know, we originally asked for. And it, it does seem curious that uh, after 45 years of, of membership, they can offer uh, our membership, they can offer Canada terms they won't offer us. But you're saying they've got to come to you with some fresh ideas about negotiations. Are you saying you are walking away or you're not walking away? Well, if there's a fundamental change of approach, of course, we're always willing to listen. But um, didn't seem particularly encouraging from uh, the summit in Brussels uh, yesterday and today. The prime minister there, kind of conversations coming out of number 10, have basically said that the UK and the EU talks have broken down over a post-Brexit trade agreement. Number 10 said there was no point in discussions continuing next week unless the European Union was prepared to discuss the detailed legal text of the partnership. Earlier, Boris Johnson said the UK had to get ready to trade with the EU next year without an agreement. The EU has said it is willing to intensify discussions, but it will not do a deal at any price. The UK had set a deadline on Thursday to decide whether it was worth continuing talks amid disagreements in key areas. It's also important to note that the EU's chief negotiator, Michel Barnier, is due in London next week for further discussions, but Downing Street has suggested that his trip would be pointless unless the European Union shifted its position. So, Zach, there's 
a lot to talk about when it comes to the UK's relationship with the European Union and the Brexit talks as they are on going. But we'll start off with, with the Prime Minister's remarks. What did you make of um, Boris Johnson's comments? It, it felt like a back to the future thing that we've had this kind of conversation before. We've had this kind of rhetoric before that Boris Johnson is you know, bashing his chest, stamping his feet in front of the European Union, right on the very brink of a no deal. And then all of a sudden there's some element of a deal that's offered or agreed quite soon after. Um, whether or not this is a market shift in that, whether or not this is a different kind of tantrum, I don't know. It feels to me quite, it's kind of, kind of a posturing speech. You kind of heard straight away it was very much blaming and finger pointing at the European Union for not budging yet it's kind of this whole the whole internal market build drama for example has kind of been swept under the carpet hasn't it that even journalists have not really spoken about it yet the EU has basically said you know until the withdrawal agreement isn't fully implemented and there's security and certainty in that happening then a deal looks quite unlikely and you've seen for example Amalian Emmanuel Macron be becoming like very much the very much the, the European Brexit bad cop talking about it's not the role of the European Union to appease Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson and Britain have chosen to leave the European Union. Therefore, you know, they are very much in control of their destiny. And if they want to go for a no deal, then the European Union and member states in that have prepared for it. So Really, it feels like another storm in the teacup that Boris Johnson's doing the same thing he done last year. But at the same time, time is of the essence. We're in the middle of a pandemic. The last thing I think this country needs is a no deal scenario. We've spoken a lot about Brexit in the past, and I think our personal positions are pretty well known on this. I mean, a no deal Brexit, in my view and in the views of kind of lots of people who are far more qualified than I am to talk about this would be really bad for the British economy. And I worry about how that would impact people's jobs. And I worry about how that impact people's livelihoods, especially kind of amid a pandemic. I mean, it's a pretty scary kind of environment to graduate into as well. If I'm talking from a position of self-interest, it's, it's, it's a strange time in, in the UK in terms of our politics. Um, I mean, yeah, this clip is, in many respects, kind of a highlight rule of what Boris Johnson has been saying for quite a while, because we've been hearing this kind of 15th of October deadline, which, of course, was was yesterday at the time of recording, how whether or not we're going to continue or not with the negotiations. But for a lot, a long time this year, there weren't really any negotiations happening because people were focusing on the coronavirus, as they rightfully should have been. So I just feel like it's so so tricky isn't it because i feel like we the uk government should have done something and i feel like boris johnson has once again committed to a deadline that was potentially not particularly realistic circumstances out of his control i.e the coronavirus have then made the deadline even tighter and uh, predictably in many respects we've ended up in a situation where the two sides haven't agreed yet which is fine and i what i don't like and this applies to both remainers and leavers if if we're still sticking with that dichotomy is you have the remainers who say oh this is this is terrible the uk government is kind of never going to agree with the 
the conditions that European Union set out in the first place. And again, I see the logic to that. And again, at the same time, you have the Brexiteers who say, well, the European Union are trying to bully us. We're leaving. We're stating our independence. We're not going to do what they say. They need to listen to our negotiation strategy, which, again, is kind of a valid position to hold. But it's not how the real world works. Let's be real. A negotiation is about the European Union conceding some ground, the United Kingdom conceding some ground, and then we probably meet somewhere roughly in the middle. That's normally what happens in a negotiation unless one side or the other capitulates. So I don't like the narratives that say, oh, the EU is the worst thing to ever happen to the world because they won't give us what we want, because the EU doesn't have to give the UK what we want. So, yeah, I feel like this was inevitable because the UK and the European Union have very different positions on lots of the issues that we've been talking about. Quite frankly, there are differences that might not even be reconcilable unless there's some serious trade-offs to be made. So, yeah, the situation with with Brexit is looking really quite bizarre. I will throw this over to you, Zach. The Prime Minister said, quote, unquote, the talks are over. Do you believe him? No. We, we, know, we know Boris Johnson's a, a habitual liar. And in general, um, it's just come through on my feed that Lord Frost is still going to talk to Michel Barnier next week. Okay, there's not going to be talks per se, but there will be a talk. I feel like, again, Boris Johnson at the moment is very vulnerable. He is losing and hemorrhaging support from the public. And we know that Boris Johnson is a politician who likes to be liked, which is a very valid, you know, many politicians need that kind of ego boost. He's not getting that from the public at the moment. He's not really getting it from his party because they are quite divided on coronavirus restrictions. They are quite divided in general. Yet the unifying theme for Boris Johnson, like it or not, because of his landslide victory last year, is Brexit. Again, this is for me, it reminds me of the call to arms that, you know, the EU is the bigger enemy than the coronavirus in this case, because it allows Johnson to kind of get back some political capital. Maybe that's bad politics. I think that is bad politics because it's kind of, again, it's forgetting what the real issues of the day are for an everyday person. An everyday person is not keeping track like we are of the negotiations of the European Union. It's going to be a deal or or no deal. Yet I feel like in government, they're kind of overcomplicating the mechanics of a deal. It's now, for example, we wanted a relationship like Canada. They don't want that. So it's now nothing. And again, I feel like once he can mobilise and get a bit of confidence back in the party, I wouldn't be surprised if there is still a deal on the table. We know the European Union, I, I hate to parrot this line because it does come from very prominent Brexiteers who, frank, quite frankly, I have no time for. But the EU do like a late deal. We've seen it quite often. We saw it last year with us back in, I think it was October, where inverted commas, concessions were made and a new deal was on the table that was oven ready to, for want of a better phrase of Boris Johnson now call me a cynic but what has happened to this oven ready deal and again a normal person like, I say a normal person someone who doesn't follow politics like we do a normal person will ask that will go hang on a minute this was an oven ready deal what's changed about it why is there now no deal on the table and 
I feel like it's just manoeuvring to try and get that little bit more out of the European Union. I, again, I said 11 out of 10 in confidence for a deal. I still think that will happen. Uh, I'm not giving up hope just yet. And I, I do feel like it's just kind of the faux macho look for Boris Johnson to try and get some people yeah, back I think on there's, side. There's a, of course, there's so much politics involved in this. And again, I, I how do I feel about this? I just think... I think a deal will probably happen. If there's not a deal, I think there'll probably be an. Ex- I think Boris Johnson has, has required whether you think it's brave or stupid. I'll leave that up to you to to go through with a no deal Brexit. I think that's that's part of the problem. And again, if if we go to a football manager analogy, which unbelievably we've not actually done a football manager analogy on the show yet, but if I'm setting up my team to play against European Union FC, one of their managers' preferred traits would be to attack in the final minutes and try and win the game at the end. And again, going into this negotiation, the UK government should have been aware. And of course, the government is definitely aware because they literally did it to them last year. that The EU, as you say, Zach, likes to cut deals at the last moment. And again, what are the benefits of this? Number And again, what are the if you think about the whole benefits of being in the European Union, a big part of it is because the European Union, simply by virtue of how big it is in terms of population and economic power, again, it's it's vital to remember that the EU has a ridiculous number of of people living within it and also is one of the major kind of economic powers in the world when taken as a whole. Of course, that means that when you negotiate with other parties, you have a lot of power. And again, if you're the powerful party in a negotiation, then nego- it doesn't really affect you if the negotiation runs to the end because the other side might get more desperate. And again, I'm there. I'm working on the assumption that the EU has more has more power in this negotiation than the UK. You can reject that assumption if you like, but on the basis of what we've seen so far, I feel like that's probably how this negotiation is going. And I just think, well. Boris Johnson, this is all politicking, isn't it? Because Boris Johnson knew full well that the European Union was not going to agree to a deal before the very last moment unless it was a good deal for them. And again, why would they? Is is the ultimate question. If it was the other way around, why would you agree to a deal that wasn't great for you if you could try and exert more pressure later on in the negotiations? Again, it's it's really kind of interesting and somewhat obvious as well that we've got a prime minister in Boris Johnson who not only is kind of becoming growingly unpopular within his parliamentary party, but he's also growing kind of growingly unpopular within members of the public. And if you then get to a situation where he's potentially going to throw his oven ready Brexit deal out the window, the one that got him elected in the first place, I feel like that's somewhat of a toxic mix for someone who has had a really rough year, both politically and personally i'm just not sure the logic in going through with a no deal brexit and again i'm gonna take an excerpt from a bbc news article so this is from the brussels correspondent nick beale so boris johnson's public declaration that the uk should prepare for no deal did not cause great concern within eu circles the immediate response came in a tweet from commission president uh commission president Ursula von der Leyen, who said it was full steam ahead for trade talks next week and that the EU negotiations 
would be getting on the Eurostar to London as planned. The subsequent statement from the Prime Minister's official spokesperson off camera, but on the record that trade talks were over, has left senior diplomats in Brussels deeply unimpressed, as, as one person put it, to Nick Bill. They continued, we're getting used to being part of Johnson's pantomime. I think that sums it up really nicely, just that clip. We're getting used mm-hmm. to being part of Johnson's pantomime. And again, both sides are playing a game. Both both sides are playing chicken at this point. And again, I, I feel like this is something that's going to rumble on and rumble on and rumble on. Can I share my pet peeve with you, Zach? The sure. thing that really annoys me about the discourse around Brexit is when people talk about a no-deal Brexit as being an Australian deal or an Australian solution or whatever it might be. Because oh, yeah. it's just, and again, to quote the person who, who kind of took over one of the government's handles at the start of the pandemic, it's just simply twisting the truth, isn't it? Because it gives the it implies basically that there is a deal of an Australian nature when of course there is no deal of an Australian nature. There is a Bolivian deal if if we're going to start naming random countries that probably don't have a deal with the European Union, it's like the American, it's the American the Samoan deal. deal. I mean, it's just, it's just ridiculous, isn't it? It's ludicrous. So yeah, that's, that's where I'm at with Brexit. Have you got anything to add on this topic? I just think on the note of Australian type deals, I weirdly, I had a kind of gold dust when Boris Johnson was talking about this as my seminar was going on. I had the question about Brexit. And this is all well and good to say there's an Australian type deal waiting or, or that kind of arrangement. Yet, I think people in government, and this is quite basic level stuff, that once the transition period is over, everything's reset. All our bilateral agreements, we're going to have to renegotiate again. And if we can't get what many in this government have called the easiest possible trade deal to actually do. And I really do fear, for example, potentially with the Joe Biden presidency, how we're supposed to negotiate a free trade arrangement with them, how we're supposed to arrange a free trade agreement with other countries, other quite sizable countries, as we go into like this post-Brexit era of trade. And it's just not really, it's not good form to be untrustworthy, obfuscating, very much intransigent even with probably our closest partners and it's just not good form it's not it's not good precedent and really it's not good politics you've given and again someone who does kind of a lot of kind of student radio and, and journalism stuff and podcast i'm going to thank you i've ruined i've ruined the segue but you've given me a fantastic segue to move on to the next topic of course American politics and the Democrats, both potentially in the White House, if if Joe Biden is elected and within Congress, have said repeatedly that they wouldn't accept or wouldn't agree to a UK-US trade deal if the terms of the Brexit solution, whatever that might be, were to undermine the Good Friday Agreement. And again, people got very upset when this news came out a couple of weeks ago because people were saying, oh, why are the Americans interfering in, in British politics? It's nothing to do with them. Uh, of course, that that can that is completely ignorant to the fact that the United States was one of kind of the people who were policing the Good Friday Agreement insofar as they helped to like broker the deal. So, of course, America is going to be interested because 
they helped to make the thing. And secondly, another reason why America is going to be interested, and the Democrats in particular, is because the Irish-American lobby is pretty sizable and they probably don't want to upset them either. So yeah, there's lots to, to talk about with Brexit and US politics, and I'm sure we will closer to the time. Um, Zach picked out two clips from last night, at the time of recording, so these took place on Thursday. The two town halls with Donald Trump and Joe Biden speaking on different channels at the same time, which was quite frankly a ridiculous kind of broadcasting decision, but we'll, we'll park that for one moment. We're going to start off with Donald Trump. So here is a extended clip of the president talking about his tax returns. I want to say two things. Number one, it's a very small amount of money. Number two, it's very straight. It's very, very straight. But it's a tiny percentage of the worth. Did you ever hear the expression underlevered? Yeah. I am extremely underlevered. Well, here's the thing. You could clear this up tonight by just releasing your tax returns yourself. I mean, I, that's well, what I'll I understand. I think what. people are just wondering. As you know, you're I'm the only... It turned out that I am yes, underwrote. The IRS actually... says Excuse you are. me. No, no. But you the accused... IRS says that doesn't stop but you from releasing. you accused me of not being under it previously, and so did other people at NBC, and I am underwritten. So that was solved. That's good. I am underwritten. No person in their right mind would release prior to working out the deal with the IRS. And I'll go a step further. I'm treated very badly by the IRS. They treat me very, very badly. You have people in there from previous administrations. They treat me very badly. But we're underwritten. It's very routine in many ways, but we're under audit. They like to change the game, change the rules, do everything. You saw what they did with the Tea Party people. You saw what they did with the religious group. But to be group. clear, there is no law or rule that, that prohibits you from releasing your tax no, returns. except common sense and intelligence and having lawyers that say, because I would love to release them, and as soon as we come to a conclusion, I will release them, and very gladly. But if you go to elections, and if you take a look, you'll see 112... I think it's 112. It talks about the income, which is rather massive. It talks about all of the properties. They have them listed. You can never learn more. But you know what happened? People went there. All the reporters went. There was like a feeding frenzy. This was originally when I filed it. And I filed it every year. I update it every year. My son is here. They run the company. I don't run the company. You it know? also says that you, you paid know, $750 so you. in taxes in the, the, the year you were elected. Yeah, because is that that's true a statutory not? number. It's a statutory. But it's is not that, that true? I think it's a filing number. You pay seven hundred and fifty. It's a filing or a filing fee. Most people here probably no, pay more. No, I don't know. I, I can tell you this: if they have my tax returns, as you know, they have to go to jail. It's illegal. But their numbers were wrong. So Zach, we've okay. heard once again from President Trump talking about his tax returns. Something actually just struck me listening to it then. The president said, well, I wouldn't release my tax returns because I'm under audit from the IRS. It's also kind of against common sense. And then he started speaking about his lawyers. He said, having lawyers that say, and then he just stopped mid-sentence. So my first question to you is, what might his lawyers be saying to him that would stop him from releasing his tax returns? Because, well, it's not illegal for him to do so. And secondly, do you think America is getting bored of this conversation. Has the Trump tax situation gone, gone stale? I think his lawyers are saying, please don't release them. I think from the New York Times, I think who broke the initial $750 story, we know from many sources over the next past couple of days, actually, and it was part of a massive part of his town hall 
was talking about how much debt he was in, which was allegedly $420 million that he kept saying was under leveraged and this was okay. It's actually he's holding money for other people. He kind of deflected about whether or not he owed money to other countries. And then, of course, it was about his taxes. I mean, yeah, I, I feel like it's such a non-story. I looked at kind of the way that the reporter was, was properly badgering him, and I thought there are many more things I think the country is actually concerned with. Ta I think tax in itself is a great conversation to have, but personal tax returns, I think, are not. I feel like it's like the Hillary Clinton story in 2016 over the emails. I personally didn't see how much of an issue that was, of course, where we weren't too wide in with US politics actually was quite a big issue. But at the same time, it's one of those things that shouldn't decide someone's election, in my opinion. I feel like if you're an incumbent president, you can kind of shield yourself from the tax return story if you talk about taxes, about what you're going to do. And something I found quite lacking in all of Donald Trump's town hall, town hall with NBC was he did not talk about enough about what a Trump second term would look like. We said this over the past few times we've covered US politics, that we actually are none the wiser about what a Trump second term actually looks like, apart from ta tax cuts from the last time. I think someone asked him at the town hall about this. Oh, what do you think? He went, well, I've done, the, I've handled the economy really, really well. You're thinking, well, we're in one of the greatest recessions in history, of course, I do feel like at the same time he can't really help that because of what happened with COVID. Yet again, about the tax story, that's boring. And the longer Trump doesn't talk about what he does, this story won't go away. It might be boring to us. It might be boring to a voter. But if there's nothing else to talk about, then this, this story that is quite salacious, but at the same time quite controversial and will get headlines, is going to stay in the news. So I feel like it's a bit of an own goal that perhaps Trump, could kind of play politics quite well by saying the story isn't about tax it's about the tax system itself and what my what i would do in my second term was make the middle classes pay less tax for example yeah i mean this has been i think the worst election in terms of actual kind of meaningful things being said uh, there's just been a profound lack of policy especially from the republicans but also slightly from from the democrats as well there's been an unwillingness to answer big questions throughout the campaign and again we've seen that i don't want to sound like the from both sides perspective because I, there's a point i'm going to make later about some of the coverage that the bbc did that i thought was ludicrous um but yeah there's the, the, there's not been a lot of clarity in a lot of these issues um i agree with you to be honest Zach. I, I don't think america at large particularly cares about this issue i think th this is essentially red meat for people who don't like donald trump because if you don't like donald trump and you want to see joe biden elected you're going to lap this stuff up because it's it's brilliant isn't it because it confirms everything that everybody thinks about donald trump not only does it suggest that he's probably not as rich as he says it he is it also suggests that he's not a particularly good businessman and it also suggests that he's probably a bit of a fraud when i say fraud i mean in terms of kind of not yeah. being what he is, not in a legal perspective. So, yeah, I think there's there's issues with that and about how much it really matters to the election as a whole. I mean, yeah, I think US politics is in a, in a strange place at the minute. I think what I'd actually like to talk about was, was the way the debate 
well, it wasn't the debate. The two town halls were set up, and it was just. I don't. Know. Yeah. I think it. it I mean, sums it all up, doesn't what, it? What was it, the point really in does. this? Because you had them both speaking at the same time on different channels, speaking to different people about different topics, and it strikes me as just really boneheaded and ridiculous that they couldn't have just either a spoken at different times or b just done the debate together or what well, was going to be a town hall anyway wasn't it but have have the town hall together because yeah the the donald trump event that took place on thursday there wasn't donald trump was sat on the stage not wearing a mask so he could have quite easily did the same thing and then you had joe biden walk out afterwards clean down the set and go again kind of thing rinse and repeat so it, it was a bit of an odd situation which I, I think made a mockery of the process in general yeah. and again the interesting thing there was i can't remember which polling company so you'll probably have to take my word on this but i, I believe it was 29 percent of respondents said they watched the donald trump uh, town hall and 30 i think it's 31 or 33 percent said that they watched the joe biden town hall so that tells me two things number one it suggests that an awful lot of the american population just is starting to lose interest in this and didn't kind of find the idea of watching them at different on different platforms particularly interesting they wanted to see them go head to head the second thing i'd say is that i would be concerned if i was donald trump that less people were watching me because and again this isn't scientific this is just kind of how i'm thinking about this because ultimately there aren't many undecideds in this election so if more of the undecideds were watching you then that would probably show up in the total number of people who were watching the event because obviously donald trump's base is going to be watching donald trump joe biden's base is going to be watching joe biden and although joe biden has a bigger base as hillary clinton had more of the popular vote last time I feel like Donald Trump will be slightly concerned that his ratings, and again, I see the irony in talking about this, his ratings were worse than Joe Biden's. So, yeah, I, I think that that's somewhat of a difficulty for the president. Zach, in terms of the state of the race for President Trump, is is he going to lose this? Is this starting to look really quite quite shocking for him or is there a resurgence? What what's going on with the Republicans in yeah. Trump? I, I feel like if you just look at the campaign, you don't even have to look at what happened last time or the polls itself. If you just take the Republican campaign in isolation, it has all the hallmarks of a landslide defeat. That it's quite inverted, it's quite going to the going to the converted rather than trying to preach to the up to the unconverted. And we know that the Republicans are in trouble in states they shouldn't be in trouble in. For example, Texas is like the big example that the typical lead in Texas is usually double digits. It's now veering into territory where there are some pulses that are predicting that Joe Biden might just snatch Texas, which would be an absolute and for want of a better phrase, total disaster for Donald Trump. And I just feel stage management of this election has been quite horrific for the Republicans that they've not put out a very valid cause for giving a president a second term. It's very rare a president loses an election. It's usually, I think the last time was George, the older George Bush, George Bush's father was the last time he had a one term president. It's quite rare. 
And Donald Trump had a case. And I, I said this a long time ago, that the economy was in a very good shape before the coronavirus. And the way that Donald Trump has actually approached this is he's talked about the last three years, but he's not spoken about this year and how he can use the, the already strong economy to kind of build back up to the point where they were right before the pandemic. He's not really spoken about that. Again, he's talking about what he has already done rather than what he intends to do. And for me, it just sounds like it's become a bit of an echo chamber. They've kind of accepted, I think, that they're not going to win the states they won last time around. It's going to be quite a defensive election in terms of the states they need to win. And really, uh, there is always going to be a way. I, I always believe that no election's completely done. I, and whenever you ask me about my ratings of who do I think will win out of 10, I never give a 10 out of 10 because I feel like there's always going to be an outside chance. But the, we're three weeks, under three weeks away now, and something quite momentous would have to happen and something quite convenient, lucky, however you want to say it, for Donald Trump to be re-elected. Yeah, I mean, and again, we, we spoke about the polls a lot recently and and again i'll refer to the to the poll tracker that the garden have put on currently and, and these are eight of kind of the most important states in this election currently biden according to the polls is ahead in florida he's ahead in pennsylvania he's ahead in michigan he's ahead in north carolina he's ahead in arizona he's ahead in wisconsin that puts of of kind of the eight most important states in this election trump ahead in iowa and also ahead in ohio i mean it's not particularly encouraging for the president i think that's probably the polite way of putting that i mean yeah it's it's so difficult to see how trump how trump navigates this and i think it's quite firstly it's quite unbelievable to see his how in such good form he is in a way i mean and again i was listening to um americast which is the bbc's um american politics podcast it's got john zappel and emily maitlis uh who kind of run the podcast it's really really good i do kind of recommend it after of course she finished midfield politics but um yeah they were talking to it, and a point that i think zappel made was basically like this is a president who 10 days ago we were kind of worried that he might be seriously ill with the coronavirus. Now, 10 days later, he's kind of dancing to Macho Man on a, on a stage, having just got off Air Force One. Um, it's been quite the transformation. It's been quite something. And yeah, I think he's, he's very Trump. He's, he, he's peak Donald Trump, isn't it, at this stage? And again, it, it's difficult to see if this can see him to victory. I think another thing I'll bring up as well is... A lot of the time you're seeing these these videos from Twitter of American voters standing in line for hours and hours and hours. And I just think, how on earth is that OK in a in a supposedly established democracy? Mm. It's just it's really kind of schoolboy stuff, isn't it? That, that people who turn out to vote in an election shouldn't have to stand in the queue for 11 hours, let alone in the middle of a kind of pandemic. So, yeah, it's. It's it's really quite shocking that that is a thing and that that is something that has been a theme of American politics for a while. There are examples in, in normal elections, even when Barack Obama was, was president, where people from kind of underprivileged backgrounds had to wait in line for a long, long time to kind of potentially stop them from being able to vote. It's just it's just ridiculous, the, the situation with voting in America. Um, the other point that I wanted to raise about kind of 
election spend is that Joe Biden is starting to sink a lot of money into Florida, which makes sense because it's it's really important for Joe Biden that he wins in Florida. The other thing that I picked up the other day, Zach, is that Joe Biden is actually starting to spend money in Texas. Um, and I don't think Joe Biden nor the Democrats think that he will win in Texas, but it says an awful lot that he's willing to actually spend some money there. And again, there's a couple of states where Donald Trump is expected to win comfortably or the ones that you would expect him to win comfortably. Where Trump is saying, well, we're not going to spend any money here. If that means our lead slips away by a couple of points, that's fine because we'll still win the state and we're going to prioritise other places. That, to me, says two things. Number one, and I think this is fairly obvious, Donald Trump's campaign is very much on the defensive. Number two, it is it speaks to incredible financial mismanagement that they have to prioritise in this way. Because, of course... Whenever you get into an election, you at this stage, you have to kind of plan where you're spending money as a, as a means of kind of maximizing the impact. That, that's absolutely fine. That makes sense. The issue that I have with this, though, is that Donald Trump has been campaigning and ha- he's been fundraising for the past three and a half years. It's not like Donald Trump hasn't been fundraising for his second term throughout his presidency. And I think it says a lot that we get into a stage where he's prioritizing some states surprisingly over others so yeah i think uh, in terms of the financing of this election it's just been so so fascinating zach any final thoughts on donald trump or or the trump campaign at large i think you, you make a really good point about funding and for me the texas thing kind of resonates with what happened here last year in our election that Joe Biden doesn't really have to say a lot, I think, for people in Texas to vote for him. I feel like what the Tories done in what we call the Red Bull is, can we just borrow your vote for this election? This is such an unprecedented issue. This is the one time that I think we should, you know, take down this historic prejudice towards a certain party. Give us your vote and we will use it wisely. I feel like that's what Joe Biden's kind of tapping into, that it's going to be a case of a borrowed vote in Texas that once the next election rolls around, they're not going to expect to win Texas ever again, should they win it this time around. And again, it's very, I think it's confidence in inter-party uh, inter polling that if Texas is on the table, and I do feel that the Biden campaign are now looking at this as in, we know Donald Trump will not accept the result. So how about we go out there for a sweeping, sweeping landslide that's indisputable? And if Texas is on the table, it would indicate that a landslide might be in the offing should the voters, should the polls just fall in Joe Biden's favour. The final word from you, Zach, on the Donald Trump campaign, in a word, is Texas going to flip in this election? Oh, that's that's not the word I was looking for. Come on, that's that's shocking. (laughs) It is a politician. politician I'm going to say no. Um, yeah, I, I don't think Texas will, will go blue, but I guess I guess we'll see closer to the time. Um, the, the other clip that you picked out from the town hall was, of course, from the other side, from Joe Biden. So here is a clip of the vice president. The idea that an eight-year-old child or a 10-year-old child decides, you know, I decided I want to be transgender. That's what I think I'd like to be. It may make my life a lot easier. There should be zero discrimination. And what's happening is too many transgender women of color are being murdered 
They're being murdered. I mean, I think it's up to now 17. Don't hold me to that number, but it's it's it's, incre- it's, it's higher now. Yeah. And that's just this year. And so I promise you, there is no reason to suggest that there should be any right denied your daughter or daughters, whichever one or two, one, one yeah. your daughter, that your other daughter has a right to be and do none, zero. So, Zach, the clip that you chose from from the Biden town hall was from a woman of kind of who was the mum of two children who basically said that her eight year old wanted to identify as transgender. Um, I'll throw this over to you. What made you pick out this clip from from the town hall? I was stunned listening to him in, in a very positive way that many much is said about Joe Biden. Uh, some some fair criticism, some quite unfair criticism. And the one criticism that falls in the middle of that is that Joe Biden is so stuck in the past that he can't look at what's happening in the modern day and can't adapt to it. Therefore, he's this Trojan horse for whatever the Democrats want to roll out at the next election. And that exchange kind of took it took me aback as in this guy is very well tuned into what's happening in American society. And for me, that's a vote winner in itself. It doesn't matter about the subject. It's about the fact that Joe Biden is so responsive to what each individual voter has with him. And because I was flicking between both town halls, Joe Biden's lasted a bit longer. And what struck me from that exchange, well, I think it was just before the clip, he gave this really nice anecdote about when he was eight years old, he saw a gay couple kissing. And he said to these guys, like, oh, wow, what, what's that? And then, like, he learned that from his father that this is normal. This is not something people f- should frown upon. It's like people love each other. People must feel comfortable however they are, whatever they are. And he kind of gave that message in that clip as well, that it, you should feel comfortable in your own skin. Straight away, he said, straight away, we need to get rid of the executive orders that Trump has put in that has, that has discriminated against transgender people, both, I think, in the army and in general, about recognition rights. And I think it just shows you that Joe Biden is is deflating the criticisms that I think have stood up quite against him much better than actually Donald Trump's own ones about Sleepy Joe, that perhaps if you are a middle ground Republican, you'd be saying, well, Joe Biden doesn't really understand what's happening in this country. Why would you vote for him? And that exchange kind of defeats that. It's kind of it shows you that he's well tuned into society, that society has a whole host of problems. You can't just put it to a pandemic. And what made it, I think what topped it off was the fact that every answer he gave, he had like a very like warm aura. He kept giving either anecdotes or a very personalized response. And I felt like that really has helped Joe Biden, not just last night, but across his campaign, that this guy not just doesn't just sound like a president, but sounds like an actual person behind the president. And I feel like that's something that America has been lacking for a long time. And now that option's on the table. It's these kind of events and these kind of exchanges that can... I'd like to hold my hand up and say that I I think everyone, if he does turn out to win the election, which at this point I think he will... I think we've all been very, very wrong about Joe Biden's lack of appeal to the American people because, um, and this came, this came to me kind of now as you were saying that and also kind of watching clips and throughout the campaign, but also I, I was listening to 
Um, so it was left, right and centre did kind of a documentary podcast where they spoke to different people from the United States throughout 2020 to like document the year and the build up to the election. Of course, a lot of it was then dedicated to the pandemic because that's what happened to, the, to 2020, essentially. But there was one guy, there was one clip that really struck me because, uh, and I mean, you didn't get a lot of context behind who these people were, but they're just they're just normal, everyday people. And again, they introduced themselves. And there was this guy from, in his own words, a small town in Texas. Um, and then he made a, a random joke about horses and people coming to the, the bar on horses, which was a bit odd, but there we go. Um, and basically he was talking about how he's a small town guy he kind of runs a burger joint with his wife they also sell pizzas it, it, it was quite a nice documentary anyway so he was talking about what was wrong or right with america and this guy was he was a republican whether or not he was a trump supporter couldn't really tell but he was definitely a republican just from the way he was talking and again one of the things that really struck me was he he said well one of the things that's so so important in this life is is raising children and again that's obviously kind of probably linking to quite a conservative view about the family unit and the importance of that. He then went on to say that kind of um, American notions of respect to other people had been lost. And I just thought, well, Joe Biden, whether you hate his politics or not, and you th- whether or not you think he's a raving communist or, or whatever, um, or yeah, th- there's been lots of things thrown about with Joe Biden, whatever you think of him, one thing you cannot accuse him of being is uncivil. And again, I think that clip that, that we just played is a really good example of this because this is this is Joe Joe Biden's what, 77? He's in his late mid-70s, isn't he? And this is someone who's talking about transgender issues in a way that was very sensitive, addressing the person who asked the question very directly. He seemed genuinely empathetic. And you can compare that with Donald Trump, who is so combative. And I just think, and the reason that, to tie together this point, is there will be conservatives or republicans or right of center people in the united states who still cherish those conservative values and the example the guy gave in the clip was of kind of calling people sir and man and whether or not you think that should still be a thing in a modern society is neither here nor there that's what people in america some people in america think and it got me thinking it was like okay so if this is a view which is widely fought, and I believe it is, especially among conservatives, you're having an issue because the person who's leading the conservative party, the conservative wing of American politics in America, is just doesn't exhibit those characteristics. And again, you look at Donald Trump's family, and this isn't a personal attack on them either, but you look at Donald Trump's family and the way that they conduct themselves in the media too, they're not really catering to the kind of people who are talking about kind of calling your neighbor sir and raising children properly and this kind of stuff and i just think that joe biden is might have actually been the perfect pick for the kind of the democratic ticket because he is so softly spoken and he's so in many respects quite inoffensive even if you disagree with his politics he's not particularly in your face not in the way that someone like and again, I, th- I think a lot of the criticism that Elizabeth Warren receives and people like Bernie Sanders receives is not fair and is based on things. Basically, I, I think that a lot of the time people think of Elizabeth Warren as being aggressive and shouty because she's a she's a woman in politics and stuff like that. But and I think that might have been a problem. But with Joe Biden, you you don't have that problem. I feel like this. I appreciate this has been quite an extended monologue, but. I, I do think he was probably the right pick. And I think this this kind of clip 
I think kind of draws that point together quite nicely. Absolutely. And um, and this has come from someone who, when Biden was nominated, I I openly said, well, I don't see the point of voting for Joe Biden. I've been pleasantly surprised by the Biden campaign that he's got it right. I think he's got it right. I think his vice president pick, okay, wasn't really, I was ambivalent towards that. Again, it's kind of things can only get better with these people. We've seen the last four years, the, the divisiveness, the, the quite frankly, the rank nastiness and nepotism of the Trump administration. And although there's been positives in his tenure, it's been largely laced with negatives and quite bad press. And I feel like Joe Biden is that reset button I think America needs, that it's time for just four years of just a break from divisive, quite rancid politics. And and that's what Joe Biden is, a very statesman-like figure, a stable figure that, that will offer at least four years. We, he might go on for another term. Who knows? We can't look into the future. Should he win? And I feel like it's these kind of things. Like I can't remember the president. I think it was Roosevelt, for example, with the fireside chats. It's that kind of it, Biden's the kind of president you would probably sit down with and have a normal conversation about your life with him. And he will talk to you about his Whereas Trump is this kind of writing the, you know, the art of the deal sequel whenever you're talking to him. And it's just the, the dichotomy in how the town halls were were conducted and how they received. I feel like we'll definitely map out what happens on November 3rd. We're, we're under three weeks away now. And you just feel we are just waiting for that Biden victory. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm growing increasingly confident that Biden will win. I think there's going to be drama. I am under no illusions that I, I'm not of the opinion that I think Donald Trump is going to concede on election night and it's all going to be over and, and Joe Biden will be in the White House uncontested and it will be fine. I'm I'm not that naive. I'm not that optimistic. I, I, I always tend to tend to, I think, shave on the on the pessimistic side of the hedge. But yeah, I feel like I feel like Biden and the campaign are doing pretty well. And again, I think a big issue that Donald Trump has had. And again, I, I don't want to blame him personally for getting the coronavirus. It's not what I mean when I say this. But it was very irresponsible. In in the eyes of, of, of a lot of the American people, it was very irresponsible. The polls suggest that people think this. And you compare how the Trump campaign and the Republican Party dealt with the, the outbreak at the White House. And you then compare that with what the Democrats did when it was announced that... Um, Kamala Harris's communications director and a member of kind of the flight crew had tested positive for COVID-19. There was a very, very different response. And I just get the feeling, and I've been listening to lots of different podcasts, reading lots of different coverage from people on both sides of the aisle. And I'm, I just have a sense that people are kind of laid back style of politics that that we were kind of used to i think I, I think this is a good point as well politics should be boring and again that's not a great way of advertising the podcast but but politics should be boring <laughs> in many respects like people normally shouldn't really be that interested in in uh, the procedural matters of like the Brexit negotiations for example it's a weird thing to be interested in because the subject matter let's be honest, is pretty dry. 
And if it was working well, nobody would be particularly interested. The only time that problem is if you have these really kind of firebrand charismatic leaders or if everything's going horribly wrong. And in America at the minute, it feels like you've kind of got a mix of the two with the coronavirus and with Donald Trump being such an incredible character. And I think, yeah, the election is, again, we're only a few weeks out now. The election is going to be absolutely fascinating. Um, I, I don't know how to end the show. We've been going over, I think, kind of towards an hour and 20 minutes at this point. So it's probably about time that we wrap up. Um, what I'll ask you to finish, Zach, I asked you about Texas earlier and I got a really rubbish answer and I, I don't think the listeners are going to be impressed with you. Um, so I'm going to ask you another one, which I, I don't think is, is going to be any easier to answer. But Joe Biden currently leads the polls in Florida. Is he going to win the Sunshine State on November the 3rd? Absolutely, Zach has made a definitive prediction, and I think that is the perfect way to end another episode. I've got no idea what episode this is. Another episode of the Midfield Politics podcast. Before we leave, I'd like to kind of direct you towards our Twitter account at Midfield Politics. We post all kinds of good stuff, lots of polls. If you like polls, please come and join us over there. You will find links to my Twitter account at Luke James underscore thirty two, and links to Zach's Twitter account at Zachiavelli underscore V2. Um, yeah, that rounds up another show. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. We're, we're excited for election night. We're looking forward to it. Um, and yeah, hopefully you're going to be there with us. So yeah, once again, stay safe, keep voting. <laughs>